core beliefs that we can't even see that we were taught to believe about ourselves. When we were children, messages got pressed into the wet cement of who we are, of our soul. And those messages we can't see, but they become sort of the virus infecting the operating system. And so my goal, my task is to reach down your throat and begin to pull out those messages. What makes a relationship happy? We're going to get into that. Flynn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bert. It's great to be on. I appreciate you having me on. And so, first of all, I want to talk about just your overall thought on therapy, because you obviously are coming from a different angle, because first of all, your business is badass counseling. So talk about where you come from as far as how you see therapy. Yeah, I think therapy can be a really effective tool in people's lives. I'm a big believer in it. I, however, was in a 12-year suicidal depression back in my 20s, and, you know, it was almost 30 years ago. Actually, it was 30 years ago, and uh, I just couldn't find a therapist that worked for me long-term, so I had to figure out my own way through it, and it took me years. I read about a 1,000 books from self-help to philosophy to theology to spirituality to new age to anything that would help, and I took bits and pieces here and found my own way out, and as a result... Because I had already sort of been in the counseling field, I'm a former clergyman, um, and I, I, one thing morphed into the next, and before you knew it, I had my own counseling practice based on not the stuff that I had learned in books, but the stuff that I had used on myself, and I began to develop those tools more and more, and it's a much more aggressive approach, not aggressive as in hurtful, but uh, for instance, I require all new clients to write an autobiography for me before we even start. I'll spend two to three hours studying that before we even have our first meeting so that we hit the ground running. First session is always a minimum of four hours or a maximum of six hours. I don't do one hour sessions. All follow up sessions are a minimum of two hours, maximum of four hours. Because, and and my practice presently is in Manhattan, New York City. I have clients around the world, but the people I deal with, and I actually think it's most people want this, people don't want results a year from now or three years from now. 50 minutes once a week is a model that's been used forever. And there are a lot of people that that works for. I have no beef with it. It doesn't work for me. I believe people want results now. And I believe that they, they're they willing to go deep. It's scary. They, boy, I, you know, I, get, I hear all the time from people, boy, I, I can't sit still for four hours, let alone six. How is this going to work? And well, by the time we get to the end of the session, they're like, holy shit, where did the time go? Um, but it enables me to go much deeper, much more quickly on top of the fact that I have their life story from their autobiography before we uh, before they even darken my door or my Zoom account. And so we can move very, very quickly and go very deep. And so mine is uh, an approach based on one fundamental belief, well, several, but not the least of which is that the decisions we make in life are very often driven by or in compensation for just and to look at them and identify them. And it's very scary stuff. I have clients who are CEOs down on Wall Street. I have had more military, war veterans, special ops people than I could even begin to count. And invariably, invariably, without exception, I hear, Sven, this is the scariest shit I've ever done in my entire life. And they've done six, seven, eight tours, whatever, uh, in war because they're going down to that childhood stuff and they're beginning to see not only what they were taught about themselves and about the world, but the implications of the fact that I was taught these things. So it's my, a much more aggressive approach, but in a loving way, in a very, very kind way. And 
I'm there to bring love to my clients, but to sort of do battle with the demons inside of them. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't work for everybody. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but for the people in life who are very intense and, and, or who just want results faster rather than later, um, it works. Yeah. I love it. Well, what I like about your approach is the fact that I think most people that I know that have gone through therapy, including myself, that 50 minutes is is a non-starter because you know you're starting you know you're starting to work through i mean maybe the last 10 minutes of that 50 minutes you're starting to okay i'm feeling comfortable with the with the situation i want to talk about this because as humans we're always dealing with you know uh junk inside of us uh and it takes a few minutes to be vulnerable and, and, and to, okay, I'm going to talk about this thing. And then right as you get comfortable, oh, time's up. We'll see you in a week. What? Yeah, and that, and that first, uh, you know, the first half hour, the first 40 minutes or the entire session is often spent talking about what's happened in my past week. So it's it becomes extraordinarily difficult to go very, very deep into the real shit driving the whole equation um, and in, in terms of being vulnerable and developing trust, I get clients, you know, even with me, this, the, the six hour initial session and then a few follow up sessions. So we may be three, four weeks, five weeks down the road and they've done 12, 14, 16 hours with me now. And now they're trusting. Okay. And this is an intensive. Now they're opening up. Now it's like they feel comfortable really divulging. So the notion of eliciting a deep level of trust in 50 minute segments christ that would take months and months and months and let alone what are you gonna what are you gonna do with the weekly stuff and, and you know you gotta address that and then how are you ever gonna get back to that old stuff so for me personally and again there are plenty of therapists who i'm sure make it work well so i'm not disparaging the industry i'm a big believer in the industry the one hour model or the 50 minute model or very often it's 45 minutes for me it's just like no fucking way no thank you right yeah, I, I love your way better already. I, you know, again, that that one hour session, however you split it, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, 55 minutes, people are just getting started warming up. They're starting to open up and then it's time to go. And it, it, it's just, yeah, it, to me, it's a, it, it's a broken system. I prefer your system better already because... Minimum, you need a couple of hours just to really lay the cards on the table. And maybe if you're lucky, you can identify, oh, I want to, you know, I've identified this one thing. Can you help me with it? And what's interesting also listening to you is when you look at, you mentioned books, thousands of books. When you look at the self-help industry, the uh personal development industry, whatever you want to call it, I want to say a huge segment of that industry is based on finding that limiting belief, extracting that limiting belief, and replacing it with more empowering beliefs, right? That, that's the whole crux of the whole self-help, personal development genre, and, and for most people, it takes some years. I mean, I, I hear people all the time where they've read, again, hundreds, if not thousands of books, 
and there's just they don't feel they're better off or they're maybe slightly better off. And I think a lot of it is because they haven't yet identified, like you said, the, the programming that was crammed into that wet cement. And, and, and for a lot of us, it just takes forever. All right, so let me ask you this. In one of your TikToks, let me see if I can, if I have the skill set to bring it up, if not my. <laughs> so here's a fucked up little nugget for you. You want to know what the single biggest determinant of whether you'll be unhappy or happy in your relationships is? Over 30 years of counseling people, and this is all types of relationships. This is boss subordinate, friend to friend, lover to lover. It boils down to simply this. How do you define strength? I know you're looking at me thinking, what the fuck does the how you define strength have to do with happiness in a relationship? It's simply this. Those that are unhappy in relationships generally define strength as the ability to take it. I can take it. Oh, I can endure more. I can endure more. Versus the people who are happy in relationships define strength as the ability and courage to stand up and say no. To stand up when things are wrong, when they're not being treated well, when their needs, wants, and feelings are being minimized versus just taking it and eating the other person's shit and making it all about their wants, needs, feelings, expectations. So which camp do you fit into, the unhappy or the happy? And at what point do you realize, holy shit, maybe I need to change my definition of strength? Talk about this strength, this idea that our happiness is based on strength. How did you come up with this idea? I just experienced that so much of my work is about helping victims of their own past find begin to develop a life that actually makes them happy. And so much of what so many people have been conditioned to do is take it and take it and take it. And that love means giving, giving, giving this much, hoping I'll get this much love in return because that's what they've been conditioned to believe is normal in their childhood or all they can expect. It was, they were taught either it was modeled for them or was explicitly stated, you don't matter. I matter. You need to give love to me. So then when these people walk into adulthood and I, I was this way, this was me in my first marriage. When you walk into adulthood, you're giving, 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 just hoping to get some in return. Um, the problem is, is that you, very often that person, what I call the extreme giver, ends up with an extreme taker, someone who's happy to take and take and take because of their own conditioning and their terror of opening up and giving. All right. Some people call them narcissists. I call them extreme takers. And so what has to happen is the person who is the extreme giver over years, over decades in marriages, that in a marriage that they, they're they're taking so much shit and they think they have to because they've been conditioned to believe that's all I'm worth or that's all I can expect or I'm too terrified to leave and find something better. And so what has to shift inside of them is this belief that strength is determined by how much I can endure. And instead, strength ultimately is the courage to put your feelings out there and not back down to stand up for your needs, to say no. And I get so many clients saying, well, Sven, I do stand up. I say, yeah, but the problem is you back down. To truly stand up, to find your no, is to stand up and not back down. And that's a different type of strength because it's scary. Some people excel at metaphorically taking the punches to the face, but it's a whole different type of strength to stand up and throw the punch, metaphorically speaking. And say, no, you cannot treat me this way because the terror is that they'll walk away or that right. they'll push back 
or that they'll say, no, your needs don't matter, which is precisely the message you've been getting your whole life. Your needs don't matter. And it's so painful to be reminded of that message. And so what ultimately has to happen, what invariably has to happen is that the pain of taking it and taking it and taking it and taking it has to get so bad that you finally get so sick of it that you find your no. That the pain, in fact, begins becomes your greatest teacher and your, and your greatest motive, not just teacher, really your motivator. You just are sick of it. I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's when lives begin to change. And I always tell people, you really don't have to force your change. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say, oh, I got to get up the gumption to stand up to this person. I always tell them, if you're not ready, you're not ready. And that's okay. But here's the thing. Your pain is going to get worse. It is. This shit doesn't magically heal itself. And it's going to get bad to the point where eventually you do find the strength at what I call the fuck it point where just yesterday it was like, oh, should I, shouldn't I? I don't know. And then you reach a point where the pain gets so bad. You just say, fuck it. I don't even care anymore. I'm going to do it. And you have a strength you didn't have yesterday. You have a clarity you didn't have yesterday. You know, that reminds me of, of man, the, the, first of all, listening to you, I'm thinking you just described, I want to say the average mom. Mm -hmm. Right. Moms put themselves at the bottom of the list and they give and they give and they give. And there's this almost tacit uh, agreement or I don't know, this idea that in order for you to be a mom, you, you have to be on it all the time and you can't take any time away. You know, you can't you know, you're a bad mom if you, if you decide to have some me time. That is changed over the i want to say the last couple of decades but it it is it's still kind of foreign i still meet a lot of moms that put themselves last they're they are in that extreme giving mode uh and, and this idea that uh, that uh they're less than if they decide to start you know giving some getting some or yeah giving themselves some time or some uh, uh what do you call it uh self-love and then the other thought about this idea of strength as a, as a veteran yourself, you know, I work with several veterans groups and I'm thinking there is, again, this this implication in our veterans and uh, in, in even our, our our active soldiers to take it and take it and take it. Right. You're 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 you, you know, you are to do and, you know, uh, to do or die kind of a situation. And there's a lot of veterans out there that need help that should be getting help. But they feel as though it's weak to ask for help. I mean, this idea that 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 strength is take is having enough nerve to say, "Hey, I'm not going to take this anymore. This is what I deserve." Either in the the boss employee relationship, in the marriage relationship, in the whatever relationship. I love this idea that if you're really a strong person, then you're going to stand up for yourself. You don't have to be rude about it, but we've seen the headlines when somebody takes it, takes, I'll just use, say an, ex, an extreme case where you have these women who were abused for years and they finally explode. They can't take it anymore. And what do they do? They kill their husband. And, and so I'm using that as an extreme example, but you know, from one extreme to the other, this idea of strength is incredible. It, it is something that I've never thought of but it makes total sense. Once you hear it, you go, yeah, that's uh, a, yeah. And in the end, and in the end, in any relationship, obviously it's, it's some of both. I mean, there is uh, in any relationship, 
I'm not always going to get all my needs met all the time, or it's not always about me. And so there is give and take, but yeah, it's that willingness to stand up for my own needs. And, and as you mentioned, with regard to veterans or with regard to mothers or, and it's fathers too, or, and it's, and it's not even just in the parenting, it's in the relationship uh, that undergirds the parenting and that's the marriage or um, that created the family. Um, it's the belief that my need, in the end, it's got to become the belief that my needs matter. But what leads up to that, the reason people are eating it and eating it and taking it and taking it is ultimately, it's always fear. It's always fear. They've been, they're terrified of standing up for their own needs. Uh, you know, in, to your example, the wife slash mother, terrified that if I stand up for what I want, you may not like me. You may walk away. You may give me backlash. Or in the case of the of the veteran or or many people um, who become our soldiers and sailors and airmen and, and so forth, um, they've been so conditioned to believe that their worth is found in serving other people. And that can be very powerful conditioning. And that's not a bad thing to a degree. It's not an effective model for relationships. It's not an effective model even for parenting um, or and especially marriages is, yes, there's the taking it. Yes, no doubt about it. But if you're not replenishing, if you're not refilling your gas tank, if you ultimately don't matter, you're going to become so miserable. And this is why, you know, in, in working with veterans and soldiers and, and so forth, um, so many of them, it takes until their 30s, their 40s, their especially 40s, but it takes a while that though that old belief system of just be strong all the time and I can take it, I can take it, and I need to serve everyone else all the time. Um, <clears throat> it has to get beaten down by life. And I always tell people the soul is more powerful than the will. Every 20-year-old, a lot of 30-year-olds think, well, I'll just willpower through it. But uh, talk to that same guy in his 40s or his 50s or that same tough woman in her 50s. And let's see how strong that willpower is. That's why I get so many people. Yeah, I get young people too, but they still think they can willpower through things. But the pains, the, the, the core beliefs that were pushed into the wet cement of your soul, the shit you were taught about yourself, the, the rocks, the, this 500 pound bag of rocks on your back from all the stuff that's been inflicted upon you over the course of a lifetime. You may be able to strong enough to carry it when you're 20, but do that for 20 more years. Then tell me. Then tell me about your willpower. So these, you know, these uh, young guys in their 30s giving advice to these young, even younger guys in their 20s and teens, you know, it's like, give it some time. Let's see how tough you are in your mid 40s or your early 50s. And now you've got, you know, all sorts of different elements, but you've got all that pain weighing down on you from inside. And so it's a different element. And that's why uh, very often life just has to break us. Yes. When we begun, that's when we become humbled. But more importantly, that's when we open to the notion that I want help, not just I need help, but I want help. I can't do it by myself and open to new belief systems uh, about ourselves and about life. And unfortunately, sometimes we have to be broken by life before we're truly supple, truly ready to take on a new way of thinking. Sure. What's the old saying? When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And one of the things that uh, just came to mind is I, I can't remember what the study, but there's a study out there. I don't know if it's a full blown study, but there was an article I read many years ago that the average person becomes free of their hangups or most of their hangups, meaning 
they 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 finally stop giving a crap about what other people think about them between the 35s and 40s, right? When life has beaten you down long enough where you say, fuck it, I don't care anymore. Yeah, that, that mid-30s age, and I've written on this before, but I'm not the originator of the concept. But yeah, it very often happens then. It's not limited to then. It can happen earlier. Very often it happens much later. I have clients in their 60s and 70s struggling with that exact same thing. It depends on how powerfully it was pressed into them uh, as children. Um, but yeah, a lot of times that's when life sort of starts to catch up and, and take its toll. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What do you say to people who are maybe they're struggling with depression, but they don't know why? I mean, they, on paper, they have a great life, a nice, you know, they have a great marriage, great job, careers going great. Every, you know, on paper, they look good, but they're depressed. What do you say to somebody who's depressed and they cannot figure out why? That's 99% of my clients, uh, depressed or anxiety driven or both. And they don't know why I tell them the same thing. I tell them all the same thing. And, uh, it undergirds, you know, most of my work, you have fears, pains, and BS beliefs. You've been taught about yourself deep inside of yourself and you either can't see them or you can see them and you're fucking running as fast as you can to get away from them. And until it's, it's like this tidal wave of all that crap that's chasing you and you're running, running, running or you're medicating yourself, you know, gambling, cheating, pills, booze, overworking, overparenting, over creating chaos around you, anything to keep your focus off of that tidal wave. Because if I stop, it'll wash over me. And until you actually turn into it, until you actually go into the pain, the fears and the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself, you'll be fucking miserable. That's what the depression is. Fundamentally, what the depression is, it's all the, the pains that were inflicted on you and uh, all the, especially all the BS beliefs you're taught about yourself that are packed down on top of your authentic voice, your original uh, true self rising up from within. So it's like a little baby robin in the nest with its mouth open and mama robin comes in and jams that fucking worm down there. So these messages have been jammed down your throat while your own soul is, has been trying to come up its whole life with your authentic voice. And those two things meet and that grating that's creating that anxiety. That's creating that de depression. It's like tectonic plates below the surface. Well, what happens when two opposing messages underneath the surface grate against each other? It's earthquakes on the surface. And you can hold that shit down. You can control that shit on the surface for a while, maybe even a few decades. But eventually, that pain, the soul always wins. And it will grow and it will take over your life. So that's why, you know, where I am in Manhattan, you know, I've had practice for 30 years, the last 10 years in Manhattan. And I, I have clients, you know, in from Washington, D.C. to Hollywood to around the world, New York City, Wall Street, who have it all. They have it all times a thousand. And they can't figure out why they're fucking miserable inside or why their son wants nothing to do with them or why they've lost, you know, three marriages or whatever it is or why they've blown up their career. And it's this shit inside that they've tried to run from. And at, at some time, at some point. You got to face that shit and people don't want to. And that's why some clients, when I take them down there quickly, whether it's in the first session or the second session or the third session, some bolt, they don't want to. It's too scary. Um, but the, And that's why I always tell people, you know, I'm not doing the work. When we're in session, with, if I've had a great session with the client, I always tell them, I didn't do the work. I just asked the questions. You did the work. And I know how scary this shit is. I was in a 12-year suicidal depression. I've got the nine-inch scars up my arms to prove it. I know how scary this stuff is. 
It's terrifying to go down here and to look at the messages that were forced down and why they were forced down your throat and whose agenda and why that was their agenda. And very and that's when belief systems start to explode. That's when they begin to see mom for who she really was or dad for who she he wasn't or whatever it might be. And it's terrifying. But that's where life begins. There's that great quote from the movie, The Natural, with Robert Redford and Glenn Close. And Glenn Close's character turns to Robert Redford's character and says, we each get two lives, the life we learn from and then the life we live. And it's at that juncture. It's not just enough to say, fuck it, and I'm going to move forward. That until all that shit, all the pain pain, fear, and bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself, until those are out of you, you're still just faking it. Man, that's incredible. And, and that is one of my favorite movies. I love the Glenn Close character because she was such a an anchor, such a great sounding board. She was almost mystic with her, you know, the way she approached life. She was, she was an awesome character in that movie. Uh, oh, all right, let's talk about this. Uh, you have a book out. It's uh, doing extremely well on Amazon. Um, there's a hole in my love cup. Talk mm -hmm. about there's a hole in my love cup. What inspired you to write this book? It's just uh, about 80% of my counseling method in one book. What inspired me to write it is I had so many clients who were overseas uh, in war and uh, or had been or people who just for whatever reason, couldn't come and be my client. And so I wanted to just make it as accessible as possible. And it's all of my theories right there in one book, not all, but about 80%. Um, and I wrote it about five years ago and it's become a bestseller and, you know, audiobook, ebook, whatever, paperback, it's all there. Um, we're now getting it into a few other languages. Um, and it's fundamentally this, that when you are taught that you don't matter, you don't matter, you're not good enough, or you're unlovable, and or you're not wanted. When you are taught those things, it has different effects on your love cup. We're all going through life just trying to get our love cup filled. And one of those messages in particular, the most powerful one, has the effect of basically puncturing a hole in your love cup. So it doesn't matter how fucking much love you pour into that love cup, how many people you lovers, friends, boss, no matter how successful you are, it's all just draining out the bottom. And because you've been taught, you know, such things as you don't matter. Well, fuck, it doesn't matter how much love you get. So this is the person who's always trying to hoard more and more love, oftentimes from even their own children. And until that is repaired and that, that hole in the love cup is driven by this belief. So the belief systems have to be identified and changed. And um, anyway, so that's why I wrote the book to make it very accessible. And then that's also why I've made about 800 plus free videos on you know Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, um, and so forth to make it as accessible as possible. I worked with the homeless and lived among them, slept on concrete every night for two and a half years. And so I'm and and I've been very uh committed to helping poor people. It's a big part of what I do. And so I just try to get as much content out there to try to help people, breaking it down into tiny little nuggets that they can that really punch them in the face and force them to begin to, and help them to begin to uh, pull out all the pain out of a love cup that's been packed with shit and manure and rocks and crud. And that stuff doesn't go out the bottom. The love goes right out the bottom, but all the crud stays right in there. And so my goal, I guess I'm in the business of uh, washing dirty cups and repairing the bottles. That's what I, I do. For that. <laughs> okay. Now, when you say you, you were, you worked with a homeless, 
did you were you homeless for a couple of years or did, or was this something that you experimented with? I literally it was no experiment. I literally uh, drained my bank account, and gave away all of my life possessions. And I went moved to Oakland, California and said, let's get into it. And so I literally went on the street with nothing. The clothes on my back. I think I brought a spare shirt, and a spare pair of underwear and then built my own little mini life sleeping on concrete every night, two and a half years. And I just did, you know, as I said, I'm a former clergyman, a Lutheran pastor. And so I just did ministry by walking around. I wasn't building any programs. I was just listening, talking, listening, basically bringing my counseling skills. And this was back in my forties. You know, I'm in my mid to late fifties now and I felt called to do it. And it was insane. It was fucking ridiculous. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. I'd always uh, been active in, in working with homeless and runaway youth and, uh, you know, gay, lesbian, trans uh, communities, especially ones where people have had to leave their home because they were rejected. But then to go in and live among the homeless, and it was fantastic. And I, I, I learned so much. And the, the our problems, our human problems are universal, that they are, yes, there are systemic problems uh, hurting the poor and so on and so forth, indisputable. But the human core human longings are universal. There's a great quote by um, what's his name? Um, not Robert Fuller. What what the hell's his name? Um, he was a, a Harvard professor of psychology. He's known as you know, really the father of American psychology from back in the uh, back in the 1920s. Not Fuller. What the hell was his name? Um, not Erickson. What's no, 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 no. Um, anyway, and uh, he said that which is most personal is most universal. That at the deepest levels, and, and this is true of great art, that really, truly great art, whether it's uh, music or whether it's dance or sculpt, whatever, that it speaks so deeply. It's, it's, it's the artist revealing his or her deepest self, and it resonates inside of us because, damn, that's my experience. Well, we all have these universal experiences of wanting to be seen for who we really are wanting to be accepted, fear of getting hurt. All of these things are universal experiences. And that was one of the grand lessons that I, I learned on the streets of, uh, you know, living on the streets. It's like, it's the same shit as my clients who are, you know, drawing in, you know, nine, 10 figures. Yeah, that's incredible. I, uh, I, I think that you've hit the nail on the head as far as this idea that, uh, What's most personal, personal is universal. That's absolutely true. And I think this idea of the, uh, you know, fixing our love cops is also universal because ultimately that's all what we want is we want to be loved for who we really are, not for the fake version of us. Right. And the challenge of, of being loved, I always tell people, and I've done, you know, videos on this on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and so forth. The grand challenge, we all want to be seen for who we really are and be accepted for who we really are. And uh, Cameron does such a great job of that in the movie Avatar. They don't say, I love you. They say, I see you. I see you. We we all long to be seen for who we really, we really are and have that person stay. But the price... The price of being seen for who I really am and the person's thing is that I have to have the courage to show who I really am. Well, now, now this is where we separate the men from the boys 
because so often people don't want to, they're terrified to reveal who they really are. Why? Because they've been conditioned to believe their whole life that who you really are doesn't fucking matter. I'm the parent or I'm the authority figure or who you are is bad or your voice doesn't matter or your feelings, your wants don't matter. And so this person becomes, if they can even identify what their feelings, wants, needs are, if they can even do that, then the second step is having the courage to put it out there when in the past they've been assailed, they've been attacked for who they really are. So while we simultaneously long to be loved for it and appreciated for it, it requires the courage and the immense courage to begin to put it out there. And that's scary. And especially in adulthood, not only what happened in childhood, but if you've been rejected in love or you've been cheated on or you've had somebody uh, leave you, it's terrifying to open up again. And this why this notion of doing the work whether it's therapy or self-care or whatever it is, doing the work of flushing out the pain, the fears, and the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself because that's what's blocking you from opening up again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, uh, I want to talk about one of your other books. Uh, by the way, just to, just to uh, give out your your uh, your website here, and of course, I would put this all in the show notes as well. It's badasscounseling.com. Right. And you have multiple books there. One of them, which is very intriguing, is I Steal Wives. Talk about why you created this book. What's the what is the meaning behind this title? Sure. Um, my sort of greatest sin in life, the most pain that I've inflicted, my uh, addiction, if you will, when I was younger and it ended in my early 40s, um, was that uh, I... I'd been cheated on in two long-term relationships. I cheated on one person in a long-term relationship. And I was the person that uh, a great many people cheated with in their relationships um, a lot. And uh, not proud of it, but it's dumb. And I learned from it. And I began to see patterns. I was a mathematics major at an engineering university for most of my undergraduate degree. And I suck at math, but I'm pretty good at seeing patterns in my, uh, and particularly in humans. And I began to see patterns in the people that I was cheating with who were cheating on their spouse, their lover. And, but not only that, because I'm a natural sort of question asker, it's what I do, or it's what I like to do. I find people interesting. I began to dive deeper and deeper into the people who were cheating on their spouses. And I began, began to see patterns there. Well, I don't sleep with men generally. Uh, not if there's anything wrong with that. Um, so I was, the book is based, is fundamentally um, an assessment of female infidelity from the perspective of the person they're cheating with, based on the questions and patterns that I began to see. And a uh, few things are more under-researched and under-reported than female infidelity. So any numbers we have, boy, there's not much science that's been done on any numbers we have. And so my insights that I, I believe were very credible, all case study based, personal experience based, um, were pretty fucking fascinating. And so this is why this, when I'm now in my work um, with infidelity, and I do a lot of work, I specialize in a few areas, suicide is one, infidelity is another one, cheating is another one. And uh, I really... Because I've experienced this, someone who was cheated on twice in a long-term relationship, and I cheated once, and I was the one being cheated with, I've experienced it from all sides of the triangle, personal experience. And so, I, um, yeah, some unique insights in that book. And, and is that book for women 
is that book for couples? Who's who's the target audience of that book? Well, women and men, because very often uh, it the men that I've had who wanted to read it, read it because their spouse was cheating. They feared their spouse was cheating or they fear their spouse might cheat. The women I've had read it, uh, at least the ones who have reached out to me or that I've counseled uh, subsequent to their reading it, um, they want to know why they're doing it. Why am I doing this? What the hell is going on inside of me? And one of the absolute fundamental premises of that book, as well as the book you mentioned earlier, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, is that, and and I spend a chapter on this in the Love Cup book, it's that any problem that occurs within a relationship, within a marriage, predates that relationship. Any problem in the marriage predates that relationship. In other words, the problems that are existing in the marriage, especially, especially cheating, are driven by factors, are driven by beliefs, pains, and fears that that uh, incubated, that were put in you long before you ever met this person. Everything is a response to that shit, especially cheating. So when people say, oh, oh hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Mm-hmm. My, my mind is blown. That makes total sense because... Just to just to hear that quote again, Every, how did you say it? Everything. Every problem that exists within a marriage predates that relationship. It doesn't just predate the marriage like, oh, it goes back to when we were dating. No, it predates you ever even knowing that person. Everything in that relationship is a response not to that person, but to that shit from back there. It's like uh, it's like the person who, you know, twists their knee and it really fucking hurts. OK, or no, let's do something even easier. I, I, I hit a car, I hit a curb with my car and it whack, it knocks my alignment to my front tires out of whack. If I do not repair that, everything, every system in my car is going to be affected. The alignment to my other tire, the wear and tear on my rear tires, my axle strength, my rods, my um, pins, the fucking uh, gas mileage is going to be affected, oil, everything's going to be affected. Everything's a compensation for that. And that's just a fucking tire out of alignment, right? So it's the same way that I don't, one of the things I tell uh, people is that no child comes out of the womb thinking I suck. They don't. My brother's wife was a neonatal nurse for 30 years. She's worked with at at a very well-known hospital in the Midwest. She's worked with conjoined twins, children that, that had a vestigial tail, um, all men, the smallest of the small babies, et cetera. And I've asked Amy before, Amy, what percentage of children that come out of the womb are bad? She's like, that's the dumbest fucking question I've ever heard. None of them. Oh, so no child comes out of the womb inherently bad. That means anything, any uh, belief systems, gee, I suck, gee, I'm no good, gee, I'm not good enough, gee, I'm king of the world. All of those are conditioned throughout that childhood. And that's the shit that's going to fuck up your marriage. That's the shit. And, and so the, and especially it's never more true than with cheating, that the cheater is fundamental. The problem isn't the marriage. That's a cop out to say, oh, I cheated because you're not giving me the love. I want fuck you. You could have fucking quit the relationship if you're not getting, but you chose to cheat. No, what's really going on is your love cup is so full of dog shit and rocks and there's a gaping hole on the bottom 
And all of that goes back to way back there. But you don't want to look at that stuff. You just want to get more love poured into you. You just, you know, it's the classic. Everybody says narcissist, narcissist, narcissist. Everybody loves to use that phrase nowadays. But that's what it is. And it all goes back there. And that person wasn't born that way. And a lot of people say, oh, a narcissist is born that No. Extreme takers are created. They are not born that way. Anyway, we just hit about five different fucking points there. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I, 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 I love that. Uh, uh, yeah, that's incredible. And, and, and you know, what's interesting, uh, I've said this for years, at least in, in America, uh, you have to have, you pay a fee to get a, a marriage license, right? It's part of the deal. What it's always impressed me is there should be some training with that license. If you and I want to drive a car, we have to get a license and we have to have some training. Maybe it's minimal training, but we have to pass a test to make sure that we understand how to operate the basics of that vehicle. Uh, if you want to be a counselor, you have to have a license. There's testing involved. But anybody can marry anybody, pay this licensing fee, and you're good to go. And I've always said, man, it would be nice if the government made some kind of testing requirement, some kind of uh, relationship uh, testing, something where the couples have to sit down and at least identify some of the, uh, some of the uh, what do you call it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because otherwise they're just wasting, no, I, I don't want to say they're wasting their time. Otherwise, it's going to be a surprise. To your point, you're walking into a relationship with all of this baggage, whether you're 20 or 40 or 60, you're bringing all this crap with you. You're bringing your broken love cup <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and your new spouse has no idea. Nobody, both couples have no idea what baggage is being brought. And, and so anyway... That's always that's kind of my point is that uh, the government, if they're going to make you get a license, they should have you make a you know, they should have you sit down and at least talk about finances. Uh, you know, there's a lot out there said about love languages. What are your love languages? What are your goals? Something. Anyway, that's kind of my thought on that. We're out of time. I, I want to thank you so much for stopping by some some of the nuggets that you've dropped. Some of the love bombs have been outstanding. My mind has been blown a couple of different times. Uh, one more time, I want to give out a uh, give out your website. It's badasscounseling.com, badasscounseling.com. Flynn, thank you so much for stopping by. Looking forward for to having, having you me. back again, my friend. Thanks so much, Bert. Have a kick-ass day.